Hello and welcome to another episode of the Checkdown Charlie's Football Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Eric, and I'm joined by my great friend, Theo. What is up, Theo? Nothing much, man. Another Saturday, we decided to uh, record again, working overtime for the fans. Or the fan, I should say. Absolutely. The fan goes wild. Yeah, we work in overtime for, for you guys, bringing you uh, some quality NFL history content. The first episode we covered was about the Miami Dolphins. The founding of the team, its first inception, the first games, and its uh, first four years with head coach George Wilson. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll keep it going. As of right now, we are entering 1970. So, as Theo pointed out, the Dolphins had come from humble beginnings to become an NFL franchise. Owner Joe Robbie had turned $10,000 of his own money into a burgeoning AFL franchise at the time. That being said, money was tight. The Dolphins were the epitome of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. The Dolphins saved money wherever they could, flying with budget airlines like Zantop, there are stories of running back Joe Auer having to pay for the team projector to be repaired out of his own pocket. A linebacker, Wahoo McDaniel, was moonlighting as a professional wrestler in his spare time to make ends meet. And Wahoo was actually the first name that he had on the back of his jersey. Um, and McDaniel also claimed to have drunk a quart of motor oil on a dare. So what a lovely, charming gentleman that guy sounds like, eh? Yahoo McDaniel, more like it, eh? Yeah, exactly. Who's this Yahoo? Anyway, <laughs> Hour goes on to mention, quote, the Dolphins didn't have enough credit. One time, the dry cleaners also held our uniforms up. Hour somehow also found time to keep an alligator and a lion named Clifford as pets during his time. Does that remind you of uh, Joe Exotic, Tiger King before Tiger King, or what? You're like, that's just the Florida thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So safety Dick Anderson says that players were hired to go to public events to promote the Dolphins and to help sell season tickets. Even the team mascot, Flipper the Dolphin, was asked to work overtime to excite the fans from his tank in the end zone. The manifestation of the early days of Dolphins football flipped and splashed from his 16,500-gallon water tank in the end zone. As a former Miami radio broadcaster would explain, quote, Whenever the Dolphins scored, Flipper would go through the hoop. They decided they didn't score enough, so he would jump on first downs, end quote. He would also flip footballs out of the pool whenever they scored any points. Interestingly enough, Eric, that young Miami radio broadcaster in question, he would eventually become a national figure for CNN. In 1970, WIOD Radio in South Florida went in search of a commentary team for Miami Dolphins games. They eventually hired a young Larry Ziegler to join Henry Barrow in the broadcast booth. Ziegler was advised to change his last name to King by his boss at the time. So Larry King actually served as the color commentator for the Dolphins from 1970 until mid-1971. Unfortunately, he was accused by a former business partner of Grand Larceny and was eventually arrested. Although the charges were dropped, damage with the situation was already done, and Larry King lost his job. After moving on to the Larry King Show and Larry King Live on CNN, it's safe to say that it worked out for both parties. Yeah, I would say so. Larry King is also quoted as saying, How could I not be a Dolphins fan? He said to Dave Hyde of the South Florida Sun Sentinel, I was there for their first game. I was on their radio team for their greatest days. I was friends with their biggest names. 
I was one of those who lived and died in Miami in those days with how they did. King also tells a story about interviewing Larry Zonka after a game in the medical tent or medical room. The coach of the Dolphins saw King and told him to get the fuck out of the medical room on a live broadcast. King took it in stride and there's definitely a mutual respect between both uh, South Florida icons. So going back to head coach George Wilson, as we alluded to earlier, Wilson was known more as a player's coach, someone who is more lax with the rules than your traditional drill sergeant head coach. After practice in the hot Miami sun, he'd let players go for a swim to cool off before packing up for the day. He'd break up the monotony of practice with many competitions between players. According to Mike Freeman's Undefeated, there were several unwritten rules between Wilson and the veterans on the squad. Although he mentioned that there would be fines for players who missed curfews, he said it with a smile and a wink to the elder statesman, who would take him up on his tacit approval of their staying out late. Linebacker Nick Bonaconti sums it up. Under George Wilson, you had a very free atmosphere. You kind of did what you wanted to do. There was a very little discipline. He tried to treat everyone as an adult, as a man. He believed if you're treated like a man, you'll act like a man on the field. But unfortunately, you're not always dealing with mature individuals who know what their roles are. So you had some guys who abused the privilege. Because of that, I thought we were a little disorganized, a little chaotic. Interestingly enough, there's always that like tug of war between the philosophies, right? Like you try mm -hmm. to treat a guy as mature as possible, but then there's always a portion of the team that are just not going to obey the rules. Kind of reminds me of like that one time I was watching Hard Knocks. I forgot which team it was in particular. Essentially what happened was there was training camp. And one of the like bottom of the roster players decides to bring in a girl into the dormitories and then like proceeds to get cut the following day. Right. And it's like sort of that thing where it's like, dude, we don't have to explicitly tell you, you know, you just don't do it. Yeah. I mean, if you're not mature enough to realize the seriousness of what this is, you're probably not mature enough to be on an NFL roster. But then again, I mean, it goes back to an older George Wilson quote that, that you said earlier in an earlier episode that some need a little chewing out. Others don't necessarily need that chewing out. That balance is all good at winning excuses all matter of sins, right? So if they had come out the gates guns blazing and won a bunch of games, then obviously his style would have been praised. But because they didn't, then it's easy to find the faults with it as well, right? Mm-hmm. Mostly, the players who stuck around past Wilson's tenure didn't appreciate what they saw as settling for less. At a team banquet in 1969, George Wilson told his team that he would be satisfied if they won seven games. Mercury Morris is on record as saying that this did not sit well with him. This also goes back to our previous episode, which came across as Wilson making excuses for a team that he couldn't or wouldn't transform into a winner. Freeman goes on to explain that there was still a lot of segregation in NFL locker rooms. People would often room with players of the same race to avoid controversy, whether internal or external. This is set against a backdrop of tension and rioting in black neighborhoods in Miami in the late 60s and early 70s, and in the U.S. at large. Obviously, you're talking about the civil rights movement going on in the late 60s as well. As far as NFL rosters were concerned, there was an unspoken rule that teams could only have a certain even number of black players on their squad to avoid having black and white players rooming together on the road. Legendary Browns running back Jim Brown is quoted as saying, teams wanted black talent, 
but not too much black talent. This unspoken rule was exemplified when the Dolphins cut linebacker Rudy Barber shortly after Wilson denied abiding by the rule to the media. Barber maintained the opposite, and Wilson threatened to beat up Edwin Pope of the Miami Herald, who published a story on the subject. In the same story, Pope seemed to imply that Mercury Morris wasn't used as much as a runner due to his race. Pope would write, quote, It is patently absurd in the light of Morris's fantastic college career to denigrate his general talents. Charges of racism seem exaggerated, yet the suspicion lingers that somehow Wilson lacks the rapport with blacks that he has with whites. Excluding the gradual emergence of guard Larry Little, the Dolphins are the only team in pro football without a black offensive regular. It's insane to think that this is just the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, and it's only 50 years ago. Not play someone based on their race, you know, instead of their skill levels. Just it's absurd. It's insane, right? Because it's it's so tangible. You can see it for yourself on the field. You know, besides like whatever prejudices you might have, it's like this person will help us win. And clearly George Wilson is throwing that out the window. And even by stating like seven games isn't enough for us this season to win. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like the opposite of what you want in a head coach. Clearly, Wilson was no longer fit with the organization. Racial tensions aside, the product in the field was simply not up to the standard expected by owner Joe Robbie. One of Wilson's assistants said of him, George is a good guy, but down deep, I don't think he even wants to coach. I think he'd be far better off in the front office. He knows football politics and football people, and I think he'd make somebody a good general manager. There were still some promising aspects to the team. And Robbie knew he needed someone else to squeeze every ounce of potential out of a squad and to prove the legitimacy of Miami Dolphins football. Robbie began discussions to sign legendary coaches Ara Parsegian from Notre Dame and Alabama coach Bear Bryant, but both men declined. Both Notre Dame and Alabama were seen as more prestigious than the Miami Dolphins, clearly. Nick Saban can attest to that. Remind you of anybody I was going to say, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Not even the chance at a 5% ownership stake in the Dolphins could lure Brian away from the Crimson Tide, which is interesting because like we had just mentioned earlier that all these players had to, you know, take secondary jobs or even incorporate themselves in the promotion of the team. And we're not just talking about like showing up to things, you know, they needed to make this work because they needed a job essentially. Yeah. So at this point in time, it's definitely fair to say that Notre Dame and Alabama carried uh, more cachet than the Miami Dolphins, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And just going back to what we were talking about earlier on the, the race front, the way that we want this to come across is not to blame George Wilson or to say that George Wilson was a racist. He's far from the only coach to abide by these unspoken rules. I think it's more of a a pervasive culture in the NFL and, you know, in certain parts of the United States at the time that led to the segregation of the black players. It's, It's not to say that that was Wilson's only reason for his downfall, but it's to give you more context around what was going on in the country at large and how that translated to the game of football exactly exactly we're not trying to like weed out an individual but just to present the conditions at the time absolutely personnel director joe thomas had been wheeling and dealing in the front office to form the beginnings of a winner 
Bob Greasy had been drafted with a number one overall pick as the Dolphins' savior in 1967, and by all accounts, was relied on far too heavily to carry the offense to round out the 60s. Even though they had players to make up a competitive team, such as Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, Nick Bonacani, Dick Anderson, Manny Fernandez, Bill Stanfill, the Dolphins were missing the final puzzle piece to bring it all together. All of this is to say that the Dolphins were desperate to stay relevant, despite a lack of quality on the field. Going into the 1970 season, Joe Robbie and the Dolphins brass knew that something had to change to get the franchise off the ground. Until that point, the Dolphins had won no more than five games under the stewardship of then-head coach George Wilson, and the Dolphins had the worst record in the AFL in 1969. The AFL-NFL merger underscored the need to take the franchise in a new direction. So Thomas and the front office started it off with a blockbuster trade to acquire future Hall of Famer wide receiver Paul Warfield from the Cleveland Browns in exchange for the first-round pick of the 1970 draft. Warfield was an explosive talent who would instantly transform the Dolphins' offense. In 1968, Warfield led the NFL with 12 touchdowns and would average more than 20 yards per catch. Does that remind you of anyone in particular, Rizzoli, especially during this 2022 offseason? Tyreek. Exactly. Interestingly enough, you know, it's, it's sort of fitting because, you know, we're recording this at this time where the offseason has just been absolutely crazy with all these wheeling and dealings bananas Um, the dolphins go out and trade a first round draft pick for tyreek hill and it's essentially the same same concepts you know the dolphins in 1970 thought they had a really good team needed just that extra spark and that's essentially what the current regime feels with tyreek hill yeah and you can see the same mindset from both organizations They want someone to put fear into the defense, to be able to stretch the field, to increase team speed. At this point, an added wrinkle to the 1970 version is that you wanted to bring legitimacy to the franchise. How better to bring fans and put asses in seats than to get the best wide receiver in the NFL and bring him to your squad? Bringing this back to current times, it's been reported on Twitter that like the Dolphins have nearly sold out all of their season tickets you can definitely say as amid the brian flores controversy this has in large part to do with you know the head coach and all these wheeling and dealings in the offseason particularly tyree kill absolutely according to paul warfield he had expected to spend his whole career with the cleveland browns and he went on to say the trade was not surprising it was shocking he had spent the first six years of his career in Cleveland as a pivotal piece of their championship team success. He recalls a story during an interview when a few months before the 1970 season was set to start and the merger had been announced. Warfield was thumbing through a sports magazine and found a headline that read, the Miami Dolphins, the worst team in pro football. And yeah, that was an actual headline from a magazine. They pulled no punches. I mean, like... Come right out and say it, I guess. Little did he know that he was going to be traded to that very same worst team a few months later. Not only did Warfield's addition bring championship winning experience to a young squad, it signaled that the Dolphins were gearing up to make waves in the new NFL. With a new and explosive offensive weapon on the squad, 
Robbie looked to fill Wilson's vacant seat as head coach. Ten days after the Warfield trade, the Dolphins had their man. Also keep in mind, Rizzoli, that this is when the NFL and AFL finalized their merger. So they had agreed to combine leagues in 1966. And, you know, they took progressive steps. But this was 1970 was the first year that the league was combined in totality. So it does make sense that from a business perspective, you have, you know, this merged league with more and more eyes that are, you know, drawn to the Miami Dolphins football and you go out and get a superstar. Yeah, totally. I mean, what better way to introduce yourself to the new NFL than by poaching some talent away from one of your opponents and their best wide receiver at that? Pivoting from the talent on the field, we still have to address the head coaching position. So enter Don Shula, who was then the coach of the Baltimore Colts. After becoming the NFL's youngest head coach at the tender age of 33 in 1963, Shula had turned the Colts into perennial contenders. With players like quarterback Johnny Unitas, wide receiver Raymond Berry, tight end John Mackey, and defensive end Gino Marchetti. Shula's leadership sculpted the Colts into a seemingly unstoppable force. It was stoppable in one aspect, and that was in the big game. Despite winning Coach of the Year honors in 1964 and leading the Colts to a 12-2 record, they would lose the NFL championship game to the Cleveland Browns. The Colts would also suffer a heartbreaking overtime defeat at the hands of Vince Lombardi's Packers the next year. In 1967, Shula would win Coach of the Year honors again, with Johnny Unitas taking league MVP despite losing out to the Rams for a playoff spot. In 1968, Unitas and backup Earl Morrill would combine for one loss on the season, leading the Colts to the promised land once again. This time, they would face off against Broadway Joe Namath and the Jets. Colts owner Carol Rosenblum scheduled a victory party for the Colts at his house and even invited Jets coach Weeb Eubank to the party before the game even started which is like, you know, the most arrogant thing I've heard. Ultimate alpha move, Sigma male, uh, Carol Rosenblum. <laughs> <laughs> this was in contrast to Joe Namath's now famous guarantee that the Jets would win the game, despite being from what was seen as an inferior league. At this point in time, what most people realize or don't realize is that the AFL is seen as kind of a little brother to the NFL. So in a lot of people's eyes, there's no way that an AFL team should even be close to competing with an NFL team. Exactly. So that's the main reason why Carol Rosenblum, the owner of the Baltimore Colts in the NFL, decided to you know schedule a party because it was a foregone conclusion that we were going to yeah. beat the brakes off of the New York Jets. Yeah, there's no way, no possible way that the Colts, who had lost one game all season could possibly lose to the New York Jets, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Despite being heavily favored to win in the Super Bowl, the Colts were upset 16-7, to and Shula was branded as a coach who couldn't win the big game. The fallout from Super Bowl III was immense, with ripple effects being felt around the entire sport. The Jets' victory was seen as a David and Goliath tale, something that would never happen in a million years, and Don Shula became a pariah as a result. The Colts would go 8-5-1 the following year, leading Rosenblum to hire a new GM and transfer power over the roster away from Shula. This was seen as the beginning of the end of the relationship between the two men. 
once the relationship between Shula and Carol Rosenblum soured, Joe Robbie and the Dolphins came calling with an offer that the Don couldn't refuse. Upon the suggestion of both Edwin Pope and Bill Brocker of the Miami Herald, the Dolphins began their courtship of Don Shula to become their next head coach. In a half-hearted attempt to circumvent the NFL's anti-tampering rules, Brocker was the one who initially reached out to Shula on behalf of Robbie. The two eventually met in secret and Robbie offered Shula a $70,000 a year contract, a role as the team's general manager and 10% ownership of the young NFL franchise. According to Freeman, this was roughly double George Wilson's contract offer with the team, an action that spoke volumes coming from the notoriously tight-fisted Robbie. There's a few things I actually want to break down about what you had just said, Eric. One thing is like, I find it so interesting that an owner of an NFL franchise would reach out to media personnel to figure out who he's going to hire next. Like, I don't think in a hundred years that would happen in today's current climate. Not today. Stephen Ross talking to Adam Schefter about who the next hot candidate in the NFL is. Yeah. Who do you think Omar Kelly or Armando Salguero would want as the head coach, you know? Exactly. Right. And it's not to say that they don't have good opinions. It's just like, that's not how it works anymore. And it paints an image of a time where things were a lot less formal and it's not to say that media members don't have power, but it's not, it wasn't as oversaturated as it is right now that, you know, Bill Brocker would have a more direct voice to the owner. I think also something to keep in mind is he's trying to avoid tampering charges. Like technically Shula is still under contract with the Colts at this time. So by using Bill Brocker as an intermediary, he thinks that this will then circumvent the rules when in reality, as we'll find out, it certainly does not help him do that. Exactly. And keep in mind as well that this does happen in the NFL, like till today, that media members will be used as intermediaries. It's just what I find more interesting is that they almost paint them as like confidants, like the owner goes to these guys regularly and asks for advice. So per the New York Times, immediate and substantial interest in the Dolphins caused me to leave the Colts, said the 40-year-old Chula. Being active in ownership while still coaching is something I've always wanted, which is sort of insane because, you know, nowadays a coach would be never offered an ownership stake. Don Chula would actually eventually sell his ownership stake a few years later. And uh, we have this quote by Darren Ravel on Twitter. He brings up a really good point about that offer. He says that Don Chula was given a 10% piece of the Dolphins to coax him to leave the Colts in 1969. The stake in the team at the time was worth 750000 which is insane in 1970s dollars. Yeah. Shula sold it back a few years later to owner Joe Robbie. The stake today, had he held onto it, would be worth at least $200 million. Absolutely ridiculous money. And that's exactly why coaches are not offered ownership stakes in teams anymore, because... It's big business, man. Like it's not, (laughs) you're not just handing out ownership stakes in NFL franchises willy nilly, especially if, you know, in a lot of cases, the coach isn't going to be there past, you know, five, 10 years at the most. 
Exactly. And it makes me think that there was sort of like a wink, wink, nudge, nudge agreement that he would eventually sell it back to the owner. Something about this seems like too good to be true. And it just almost seems as if Robbie offered that to sort of like just give him some more cash on the side and to circumvent the tampering charges. Right. So, yeah, the offer itself actually did seem too good to be true, at least in the mind of Carol Rosenblum. Carol Rosenblum complained at the 1970 owners meeting, alleging that Robbie was tampering in his hiring of Shula and that it violated league rules around negotiating to hire another team's employees without permission. Commissioner Pete Rosell agreed with him and decided that the Dolphins were in violation of the NFL's policy on tampering. This also was directly from the New York Times article on the subject. So, Robbie, according to Roselle, was out of order on three counts. First, he initiated the contact with Shula through a third party outside of football who told the Colts coach that part ownership of the team was included in the terms. Second, Robbie began negotiations with Shula without asking permission of the Colts through the club president, Carol Rosenblum, or his son, Steve. Third, Robbie failed to inform the Colts until the day of the announcement of the hiring of Shula last February 18th. Roselle said, League rules insist that a direct telephone call be made to an employee by a prospective employer for permission before negotiations take place. It is the conclusion of this office, said he, that circumstances of employment constituted violation of these rules. Disciplinary action has been taken under the Constitution, which provides forfeiture of draft choices. Another league provision is that one club cannot hire a head coach away from another unless the coach stands to benefit himself. And this is where that ownership stake, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge part of that deal that you mentioned, Theo. So Robbie qualified on this count as Shula went from head coach at Baltimore to head coach, general manager, and a minority owner of the team in Miami. So what he was saying is that, no, I'm not poaching your head coach. I'm providing him with an opportunity to advance himself. So it's not poaching if I give him ownership stake in the team as well. Exactly. He's elevating him to a a bigger position and making him a minority owner. Joseph Robbie had this to say about the situation. It never occurred to me that either then or now, that if a person under contract is told that he can discuss entering a new contract with someone else, that someone else needs to permission to talk to the person under contract. Commissioner Roselle agreed that Shula had obtained permission from the Baltimore Colts to talk to me, but he held that I needed permission to talk to Shula. Think about that for a while. Shula could talk to me, but I couldn't talk to him. And that's where, you know, Bill Brocker comes into the picture because when you use an intermediary, technically, technically it's it's not. So this is just like another case of the NFL being caught in a sort of loophole, but then enforcing what they want to take place in the end. Right. Like Mm -hmm. technically Robbie is right, but he's not right at the same time because in the manner he did it wasn't proper according to the other owners of the league. Exactly. For the record, the Dolphins were forced to give up their first-round pick in the 1971 draft, which the Colts used on running back Don McCauley, who played for the team for 11 seasons. 
contrasted with Shula's 33-year coaching career, I would say that the Dolphins definitely got the best of that deal. Robbie tried to call Carol Rosenblum to defuse the situation, but Rosenblum declared that he would never speak to Robbie again. He even went as far as to physically turn his back on Robbie and Shula at future owners' meetings. And Rosenblum said, I have not talked to Robbie or Shula since this happened. I will not talk to Robbie or Shula ever again. One stole something from me. The other allowed himself to be stolen. Rosenblum also didn't hesitate to add that Shula was 0-2 in championship games. According to Mike Freeman, Rosenblum took every opportunity he could from that point forward to insult Shula to the point where Pete Rozelle had to step in and actually fine Rosenblum $5,000 just to keep his mouth shut. He's talking so much smack that the commissioner needs to, needs to come in and, hey man, chill. Like, I have to find you because, like, you got to keep your mouth shut. When I read stories like this, it sort of uh, triggers this saying that Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk always says, and he refers to the owners as the 32 oligarchs, right? Because essentially that's what they are, right? It's an oligarchy. You know, the NFL has monopolized football, so to speak. You know, it's like the main product. So essentially the NFL is just... 32 owners fighting amongst themselves. And sometimes they can come to an agreement, right? It's funny because you'll see this, these sort of things happen and they play out year to year, especially at owners meetings where one owner is coming from one perspective and the other owner is coming from a different perspective. And they just do not see eye to eye whatsoever. Bring it to today's context. uh, There's a lot of talk of the Deshaun Watson contract where the owners of the Cleveland Browns guaranteed $230 million dollars a man who's still being investigated on 22 counts of uh, sexual misconduct. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because a lot of people are writing that this contract is going to take the NFL into a a next step. And, you know, it's repainted the whole landscape of quarterback contracts. And like a lot of owners are not going to be happy with the Haslam's. And like, that's sort of like a similar dispute. It's like those internal conflicts within the ownership groups that, you know, make the league very interesting. Yeah, absolutely, man. Totally agreed. My thoughts on this is that Rosenblum is definitely like, he definitely has a reason to gripe, but like, just even listen to the language he uses. One stole something from me and the other allowed himself to be stolen. Even this guy thinks of Don Shula as his possession. Like, I own this man, you know, and he was stolen from me. Like, that's messed up. Like, that that whole, you know, mindset. Happiness, right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's treating people as possessions. I understand why you're bitter, but also if you're treating your head coach like an object, then no wonder he wants to leave. Yeah, exactly. There's no free market in the NFL, right? It's just 32 owners and, you know, they fight amongst themselves. Absolutely. So Rosenblum wasn't the only one who was sour about Shula becoming head coach of the Miami Dolphins. George Wilson piped in and committed the cardinal sin about talking about another man's money. Shula was making $7,000 a year as an assistant at Kentucky when I hired him at Detroit for $14,000. I also helped him get the Baltimore Colts head coaching job. 
I practically wrote his contract for him. Carol Rosenblum wanted me to take the job, and I had 12 meetings with him about it, but I got him to take Shula. According to Wilson, Shula would have been nothing without him. He doesn't just insinuate that he was the first choice for the job. He outright states that Rosenblum wanted him instead. Wilson never used the season tickets that were provided to him by Joe Robbie, and the bridge between Wilson and the Dolphins was officially burned to the ground. Personally, I believe that actions speak louder than words. And the fact that George Wilson retired from football after being dismissed by the Dolphins speaks volumes about him. How petty is that, eh? So yeah. you get fired, and then the guy they, they replace you with, you say, oh, well, he would be nothing without me. I wrote his contract for him, and the owner wanted me instead, but I said, no, 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 take Don Shula. Yeah, he's a big man by even mentioning that you know? uh, i mean even if that's true you really need to put that out in the media like i don't know man that just seems like like sour grapes being super petty exactly right it speaks volumes as to why they weren't winning as well like you go out and do something like that you you express that seven wins is good enough it just doesn't seem like he he wants to achieve many great things and is just sort of content with bringing other people down. After going 3-10-1 the previous season under Wilson, Shula orchestrated a complete turnaround of the squad. Shula's introductory presser would serve as a notice for the league. Shula would say, I'm about as subtle as a punch in the mouth. I don't have any miracle secrets. I rely on hard work and nothing more. They would go 10-4 and in his inaugural season in Miami. This was due to Shula instilling a culture of discipline and meticulousness in his team practices. According to running back Mercury Morris, a player who was on the roster bubble tried to sneak into practice late by hopping the fence. The ever-vigilant Shula cut him on the spot and told him to go back the same way he came in. You remember the team's unspoken rules under George Wilson that we mentioned earlier? Shula's first mission as Dolphins head coach was to change that completely. He did that first by completely remodeling the Dolphins locker room, separating offensive and defensive players onto opposite ends of the room, regardless of race. He also brought in tight end Marv Fleming from the champion Green Bay Packers, someone who would bring leadership and experience to the team, becoming a clubhouse leader from the moment he stepped in. Shula would also change the room assignments around so that black and white players would room together throughout the course of the season. One of those pairings was quarterback Bob Greasy and wide receiver Paul Warfield. Besides allowing the two stars to develop their chemistry together, Shula sent a strong message to the team. There were no unspoken rules. Shula would later say in his autobiography, quote, it really helped as far as the players accepting one another on their merits as opposed to worrying about where they went to school, whether they were black or white, Christian or atheist. He's also quoted in Undefeated as saying, there is no black voice or white voice, just our voice. Marlon Briscoe, who was the first black quarterback to start a game in NFL history, spent some time with the Dolphins and had this to say, quote, it was so different from any other team I played on or knew. No other team was like Miami when I got there. It was the first time I saw black and white unite. Lineman Wayne Moore had this to say. We didn't have the problem. We didn't have the dissension on our ball club. We didn't. And honestly, 
I think it didn't matter to us because we were so in tune to getting the job done. We didn't care about the color of your skin because we all had one thing in mind, and that's to win the biggest game of all time, the Super Bowl. And by winning the Super Bowl, you get more money. And see, all our skins were different colors. We had Spanish, we had black, we had white. But the color on our mind was the same. It was green. It was green to get that money and to get that trophy. Ah, money. It unites us all, doesn't it? Isn't that a, isn't that a beautiful message of unity? Basically, I'm about that business. <laughs> about that action, boss. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was great. I know that like cliche all the time where it's like, especially on the NFL Network, they say like football is a metaphor for life. As corny as that sounds, it actually rings true in this particular moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see from everything that we've just explained, like Shula is not going to take any crap from anybody. And this is his, he's stepping in. This is his team. You know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. If you want to talk about what's going on outside, whether that's your personal beliefs or anything personal, just forget it. We're about winning games here. Exactly. And like, he's forcing the team to integrate, not because he's expressed that he's one way or the other, not because he's like putting his politics or his like personal opinions out on the floor. It's because he just wants to win. He needs to save his job. He's goal-oriented, right? And that is essentially the best way to integrate, right? Is like to put the task at hand in front of you, right? And it forces everyone to come into line, right? Yep, absolutely. And again, keep in mind, the backdrop at this time, there were still places in Florida in the early 1970s that had segregated water fountains, segregated bathrooms. You know what I mean? So... Not only is this revolutionary from a, uh, from a football standpoint, from a real world standpoint, you can see that he's very forward thinking and is just very goal oriented in winning games, regardless of what's going around the team. New addition Marv Fleming had nothing but positive things to add when he was asked to compare Shula's Dolphins and Lombardi's Green Bay Packers, who he had played for previously. Quote, I think both teams have the same type of camaraderie when everybody likes each other. There are too many situations where you have to worry about why guys block. I'm just happy to be with people like Evans, Warfield, and Greasy, guys who are pure people, who don't cheat on each other or themselves. This isn't the way it usually is. You have too many people from the north, south, east, or west who just can't blend together. I was surprised that Dallas went as far as they did because they have the Dallas Cowboys and they have the blacks and the whites. Here, we have the Miami Dolphins and the Miami Dolphins. Shula was notorious for working his players hard in the scorching Miami sun. Under George Wilson, the players were encouraged to go for a dip in the pool after practice. Wilson even drank with his players after practices and games during his time with the Dolphins and Lions respectively. Shula forbade the team from having water on the field during the practices for the first seven years of his tenure, which like, you know, modern science tells us that is not <laughs> something you should do. Absolutely. Like that's against the human rights convention or the Geneva <laughs> convention. I think, you know, like you can't just not have water in Miami. That's nuts. 
Yeah, no water on the field. That's that's insane, right? <laughs> he would also run four practices in a day, and the players would be in meetings until 11 p.m., which is super illegal nowadays. He used this as a way of weeding out the players who couldn't hack it under his new and improved system. If you couldn't handle the Miami Sun, then what were you doing trying out for the Dolphins in the first place? Which is a fair point. It's just sort of crazy, especially since like, some Dolphins players at that point in time were holding second jobs, you know? So, you know, yeah. people really want to like the mental toughness out of that group was probably insane. Here's a detailed breakdown of the team schedule during training camp. So the first practice would be 30 to 45 minutes kicking game, then breakfast and a meeting to discuss practice. The second practice would be 90 minutes, which would focus on the running game. Third practice after lunch would be the passing game. Fourth practice after dinner would be from 7.30 until 9.30 at night. And meetings would go from 9.30 until 11 o'clock and curfew at 11.30. Jesus Christ. That's like the whole day. That's like you literally, yeah, he'll he'll give you half an hour to do whatever you want. But then you got to be back ready for practice the next day. So you basically have to dedicate your entire life to this. Otherwise, you're not making the team. If you were to modernize the schedule, I think it's probably doing more harm to the players than good. But this just seems to me that he is completely focusing on discipline. To his credit, it does pay off. Shula would lead by example, being the first person in the building, either reviewing film or game planning. Offensive line coach Monty Clark even mentions that Shula would have the coaches run some of the exercises that the players were subjected to in order to keep everyone in shape. At least he was an equal opportunity boss, right? For everyone. Equal garbage to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Veteran wide receiver Howard Twilley would help to put things into perspective. Quote, Shula always reminded us that the football team wasn't a democracy. It was a dictatorship. And he was the dictator. And he was going to tell us what to do. Zonka would say, when we saw how dedicated he was, it made us ashamed of our dedication. When we were winning, we wanted to put our feet up and drink beer. But he'd treat the win like a loss. He kept us focused. He worked so maniacally hard, it made us want to match his intensity. And this is from John Nordheimer of the New York Times in 1985, which, by the way, one of the best written articles I've ever read about football was from John Nordheimer. I'm not even kidding you. This article that he wrote about John Shula, it's some of the best language I've ever heard or read in a football article. Big shout out to John Nordheimer. We'll link it in the description for you guys to read yourselves. Absolutely. Okay, this is a quote from John Nordheimer. Shula no longer bars ice and Gatorade from the practice field, but overtaxed linemen still stagger from the field or collapse from dehydration some losing 20 or 30 pounds in a single day. I mean, I would definitely take that quote with a grain of salt, but you can see what we're getting at here. The Dolphins simply outworked their competition from that point forward. Shula would allow the players to soak their feet in tubs of ice water during games, however. According to Undefeated, some players joked that they were ready to play a game on the surface of the sun, thanks to Shula's training methods. The reversal in fortune was helped in no small part by Miami's newly assembled offensive line. The line was made up by 
Wayne Moore and Norm Evans at tackle, Bob Kuchenberg and Larry Little at guard, and Jim Langer at center. The line itself was given the name of the Expendables because all five starters on the line were either cut or traded by other teams before finding homes in Miami. So Wayne Moore was cut by the 49ers. Norm Evans was acquired during the 1966 expansion draft from Houston. Hall of Fame center Jim Langer was signed as a free agent after being put on waivers by Cleveland. And Larry Little had the same path after being cut by San Diego. According to Freeman, when Norm Evans or any other player on the Houston Oilers would make a mistake, they would sing a song called Moon Over Miami, which is a not-so-subtle reference that you were getting cut or getting sent straight to Miami if you didn't perform. Bottom of the barrel team, essentially. Exactly. Well, this is before Shula showed up, of course. Bob Kuchenberg actually quit while he was playing for the Philadelphia Eagles because he was discouraged at the time. He says that he phoned his brother from a phone booth outside the stadium in Philly, and his brother told him not to come home. His brother's like, nah, man, you're a quitter. Get the hell out of here. We don't want to see you. Don't don't come back. Loser household. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mama didn't raise no loser, basically. So yeah, after being told by his own brother that he couldn't come home, he would end up spending time in the Continental Football League with the Chicago Owls before choosing to sign with the Dolphins because his backup in college, Ed Tuck, had made the squad. Kuchenberg said to himself, if I can't beat out Ed Tuck, I can't play. Jim Langer was offered $500 to play for the Miami Dolphins in 1970, which is the same amount of money he would have gotten to play for the Cleveland Browns practice squad. As he explains it, I remember signing a contract with the Dolphins. After my $500 offer, I was sitting in a Holiday Inn immediately the next week after getting to Miami. Joe Thomas again appeared at the door and handed me another contract that was 350 bucks. I said, in my limited experience and totally intimidated state, I asked and said, you know, Joe, Cleveland was going to pay me $500. He says, well, this isn't Cleveland. This is what we're going to pay you. I said, well, God, I don't have any money. And I didn't. I was broke, flat on my ass. And I said, can I at least get a little extra money to get my family down here? He said, well, we'll give you $375. So it's just an incredible thing to go through. As I look back, the insecurity at that point was overwhelming. It was a real tough thing to go through at that point. You live day to day not knowing what's going to happen to you. Jim Langer was in on every single play of the 1972 season and would need help on only three of 500 blocks that were counted. Despite four knee operations, Jim Langer played in 141 consecutive games for the Dolphins, eventually earning himself a spot in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. 500 bucks for a future Hall of Famer? What a steal, eh, Theo? Actually, it was 375. (laughs) Oh my God. Can you imagine? And like, think about it. He's like, yeah, I was broke. I didn't have any money. What else was I supposed to do? Joe Thomas pulled the for you, my friend meme. Oh my God. Yeah. It's like, can I get more than 350? He goes, for you, my friend, 375. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. With runners like Kick, Larry Zonka, and Mercury Morris running behind that offensive line, 
the Dolphins were able to control the pace of play and dictate terms to their opponents. More on that later, of course. Running back Mercury Morris said of the Expendables, These guys provided not holes, but hallways for you to run into. Instead of heavily relying on Bob Greasy to carry the offense, they instead used a combination of runners, Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, and Eugene Mercury Morris. Warfield was brought in to give another dimension to the offense and to give Greasy a go-to option down the field. According to Bob Greasy, the offense was, quote, monotonous. It was boring. We just marched through everybody and scored. The Dolphins would finish 10-4 and on the season and finish second in the AFC East behind Shula's former squad and the eventual Super Bowl champions, the Baltimore Colts. Rosenblum got a bit of his revenge. Uh, yeah, apparently so. They also gave up the fewest points in the conference that season. The Dolphins would be defeated by the Oakland Raiders in the playoffs, but the total 180 of the franchise was complete. Don Shula was named Coach of the Year, and attendance at home games during that season almost doubled. The 1970 season ended up giving the Dolphins the confidence that they needed to go on to do big things in the 70s. Ultimately, Shula's impact on the Dolphins during that pivotal season cannot be understated. Theo, can you imagine being in Don Shula's position at that point? You've just been hired to take over the worst team in pro football, knowing that the third overall pick has been traded away, albeit for a future Hall of Famer, and you technically cost your team a first-rounder in 1971 as well. You've essentially been hired to put a fledgling franchise on the map and work with what you have to get the job done. I would say that completely flipping your win-loss record in one season is one hell of an accomplishment given the circumstances. What would you say? Most definitely. And keep in mind that one of the reasons Rosenblum was so salty about the situation was that Shula was going to a division opponent. You know, the, the Baltimore Colts played in the AFC East along with the Miami Dolphins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though the, the Colts ended up winning the Super Bowl, I think this is a great accomplishment, not just by the win-loss record, but by the culture that's already been instilled. You know, that foundation has been laid out. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And think about it. Obviously, he's, what, 33 when he gets hired by the Colts, and that's in the early 60s. So he can't be, he's probably like 40 years old at this point or just before that. Think about all the young coaches who have orchestrated turnarounds in the NFL, like even in the modern day. Think about how Sean McVay took the Rams and kind of flipped them on their head in one season. And even Zach Taylor with the Bengals, obviously, they had a pretty terrible record the past few seasons, and they were able to completely flip that around and and go to the Super Bowl. So obviously, Don Shula is a a man before his time and, and definitely instilled, like you said, a huge culture change for the Dolphins. Exactly. And moving forward, we will see what success Shula will bring to Miami. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks for listening to the Checkdown Charlie's podcast. Check us out on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us at CheckDCharlie's on Twitter and at CheckdownCharlie's on Instagram. Like, comment, and subscribe on all platforms, and don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.